Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've just read through the entire first letter of John, and what you may have noticed as we read through it is that it's kind of like a pyramid with a very large base, and, and John works through and builds up his argument until he gets to the, the very end of the letter, which is our text, that final verse. The, the base that he builds in the beginning verses is this. It is that Jesus Christ is eternal God and true man, and that he was manifest in the flesh. You see that in verse 1, we, we've heard it, we've seen it, we've touched him, says the apostle. And he says this life in verse 2, he says this life was made manifest. We, we've seen it and we testify and we proclaim what we have seen, what we have touched, what we know. We know God made flesh. We have seen God incarnate. And so we hear echoes as the letter begins. We hear echoes of, of what John wrote in his gospel in the chapter 17, where he says at one point, or he records the words uh, in this way, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. And that means to have communion and to live in communion with the Father and the Son in the power of the Spirit. So that's the base that John lays down as he addresses this letter to a church which is in conflict and which is suffering in many different ways. And, and then there are two main divisions. We kind of separated the reading of the the letter into those divisions. You look at verse 5 of chapter 1 where he says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. That's the first part. And then in chapter 3 verse 11, he begins another section. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. There's the, the word message again. And that second part deals with the fact that God is love. And so what we have is this, this pyramid with this base of Christ God incarnate, true man. And then we have these four sides of contrast. We have, we have God as light as opposed to darkness. And God as love as opposed to, to the hatred of the kingdom of darkness. So each section there's a contrast. Light against darkness, love against hatred. And what, what, what the apostle is teaching us is that you become like what you worship. You are transformed after the image of what you worship. And so you can tell when you look at people, the way they speak, the way they act, the way they react. You can tell which God they serve. That all comes to a powerful conclusion in the last verses of this book, verse 18 of chapter 5 to the end, where he kind of summarizes his, his whole argument. Verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, look, there's the contrast. There's, you're either living in sin or you're not living in sin. You're either children of God or you are children of evil. You look like what you worship. Either God is your father or the evil one is your father. And then he comes to that climax in verse 20 where he reminds the congregation 
of what a lot of the conflict was about in the church, probably writing to the, the churches in the region of Ephesus. And they're struggling with all kinds of strange and weird ideas about who Jesus is. And he reminds them that truly knowing Jesus Christ, true man, knowing him as true God, that is eternal life. To know Christ, to be in Christ, to abide in Christ, to live in the light, to live in love, to live as children of God. You can only do that if you really know Jesus as your Savior, as your God. That's the only way. So the apostle reminds us that we ought not to look anywhere else. In this final verse, he puts the pyramidion, as the archaeologists would call it, the capstone, the last stone on the top of the pyramid. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I think there's a course which is actually called Two Ways to Live. It's a very good course. But if you really think about it, there's only one way to live. There are a million ways to die. But there's only one way to live. There's only one true God. There are a million fake gods and idols. And the apostle puts before us this morning, the Holy Spirit puts before us, the words of our verse, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now John is writing this letter, which is more like a written down sermon that he's sending to the church. He lived to be the oldest apostle. He's probably well into his 80s already when he writes this letter. And you can tell this is an older, beloved father figure in the church. He, he addresses the congregation with those gentle words of affection. Seven times he calls them little children. He's not, he's not dismissing them. He's loving them. And the first time in, in 2 verse 1 he says, my little children. The elderly pastor, he's writing with a father's love to children in the faith. People that he has probably baptized and catechized and taught and comforted with the gospel over many, many years. And his heart is troubled. Because in this church, in these congregations in the area around Ephesus, there is strife and conflict and division and arguments and differences of opinion, and rejection of truth, and this all leads to rejection of each other. There are people coming up with their own views on whether Jesus is, is man or, or God, and, and the more they focus on their idea of God, the more they create a God in their own image, the more the communion of saints is unraveling, and the more pain and the more turmoil there is in the church of God, and the less light there is, and the less love there is. What does Scripture always do when there are problems in the church? What do the apostles always do when there is conflict? They don't go to pop psychology. They don't go to pious platitudes. 
They go to the heart of the issue. They go to theological instruction. Paul does it in Philippians chapter 2. The church in Philippi is full of conflict. And he says, listen, you have to deal with this conflict. And this is how we're going to do it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God. And there he goes and preaches the glorious doctrine of the emptying and humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his subsequent glory. The answer to difficulties between us as believers is never pop psychology, is never internet memes which beseech us to be kind to one another. The answer is the gospel. And John does the same thing here in this entire letter. He says, brothers and sisters, you need to get your theology right. You have to keep yourselves. You have to guard yourselves from idols because idols turn you against God and against each other. And they drive you into sin and darkness and conflict and deceit. Wow. That must have been some church there in Ephesus. It's a good thing that we're nowhere like that, right? Well, shall we do an inventory of our idols? Our brother John Kelvin said the human heart is a veritable idol factory 24-7. It's pumping out its pernicious product. If there's one thing we're good at as sin is it's making and embracing and serving idols. Not just one, but a multiplicity of them. And one thing... One good thing that a crisis does is it exposes our idols. What do we hold on to when we're afraid? What do we need? What keeps us going? What do we reach for first thing in the morning? What is the last thing that we meditate upon at night? What consumes our heart? and our mind, and our attention. What can't we live without? What drives us to all kinds of works of the flesh when we can't get enough of what we think we need? You know, we can go on for a very long time listing examples. Because there are lots of idols to be mentioned. Maybe the comfortable life that we used to have, where we could just go on vacation and we could travel and enjoy the pleasures that God has given to us in this creation, maybe we want that and we can't be happy without it. Maybe our idol is normal. And we're like, God, why don't you give me back my normal? Because I'm sick of nine months of pandemic. And I'm sick of hearing the C word every moment of every day. Lord, give me back normal. Can only when I have normal, then I can be satisfied. 
Maybe my idol is the way things used to be. Maybe my idol is order, the obsessive compulsion that things have to be just exactly the way they ought to be, the way I've decided they be, or I need, they need to be, or I am undone. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe my idol is freedom to do what I want. No one telling me what to do. No restrictions on my personal autonomy. Don't tread on me my own way. If I don't have it, I fall apart. Or maybe my idol is the need to always be right. It's one of the favorite idols that expresses itself when we're typing on the internet, isn't it? Or my reputation, what people think of me. Maybe I need people to to look up to me and, and listen to me and agree with me. Maybe I need the praise of others. Maybe my eyeless comfort foods or compulsive Amazon buying or compulsive scrolling and clicking. Or maybe I just go to the comfort of mind-altering substances, whether they're legal or illegal, or gaming, or lust, pornography, money, power over others. You can go on and on and on with the list of idols. And the point that John makes in this letter is that when you serve, when we serve idols, there are consequences. Now, we don't have time, to, I don't have time right now to mention all of the verses as I'm referring to them now. But basically, I'm walking through the letter and picking out some of the consequences that John mentions in this letter. To idolatry, there is self-delusion. You lie to yourself about reality. You live in sin with no repentance, without forsaking sin, and you convince yourself that God is okay with you. You say you're in the light and you hate your brother. You love the world. You love the things of the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, and our idolatry drives us away from the communion of saints. It leads us to turn our backs upon one another, to not want to be together. And it opens us to the lie. It makes us vulnerable to the twisting of truth. And as John walks through these these teachings in this letter, he, he tells us that when you serve the idols... You begin looking like your idol. You begin acting like your idol. You are, we are transformed from shame to shame. After the image of the king of the kingdom of darkness, our heart, our minds, our affections, our thoughts, our words, our actions, they reflect more and more the evil of the kingdom of darkness, hating the good, hating those who do good, lashing out, trying to destroy those who are happy, who live a righteous life. We become cold and heartless and selfish and angry and judgmental 
and we see a need and we refuse to help, but we love talking piously about helping. And there is fear and there is hate and conflict, deceit, lust, hypocrisy, brokenness, and death. These are all things that John paints for us in this letter. Brother and sister, brothers and sisters, what are the idols doing to us? What are the idols doing to our life or to our marriage or to our family? What are the idols doing to this congregation and to the communion of saints? Now, John isn't talking here about falling into a sin and then repenting of it, going to Christ for grace and forgiveness and restoration. He's talking about embracing sin. He's talking about worshiping these idols, living for them, holding on to them. And all these dark, evil, foul, and sinful products of idolatry, they are terrifyingly and terribly contagious. They blight our souls. They poison our hearts, and that poison oozes into our relationships and infects our families and sets in like gangrene and kills the communion with God and with the saints. And its foul contagion destroys our witness to our neighbors and the community around us, driving them away from God rather than drawing them to him. What John is telling the church in this letter is that this is not what we have been called to. And as he comes to this climax at the end of chapter 5, he, he reminds us as God's people that it is a choice, a stark choice that the gospel sets before us. It is Christ or the idols. It is life or death. It is light or darkness. It is truth. Or lies. It is love or hatred. You see, God wants us to be contagious, but in the right way. He doesn't want us to be contagious with the disease and death of sin and idolatry, but He wants us to be contagious with the irrepressible joy of the gospel. The joy of walking in the light. The joy of knowing forgiveness and restoration. The joy of walking in the truth. The joy of delighting in righteousness. The joy of communion with and love for God and with and for our brother and sister. The joy of freedom from slavery to worldly passions. The joy of freedom and desiring God's will. The joy of knowing God the Father through God the Son in God the Spirit the joy of eternal life, the joy of being filled with the love of God, the joy of being changed from glory to glory after the image of Christ, the joy of knowing we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers, the joy of sacrificial love which is real in deed and in truth, the joy of knowing that Christ abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us, the joy of perfect love, casting out fear, the joy of delighting 
in His commandments as not burdensome. The joy of knowing without doubt that we in Him have overcome the world. The joy of knowing that when we mess up, when we don't measure up, when we've made mistakes, when we're embarrassed that we haven't been better Christians, the Son of God is always ready and willing to hear our prayer, to stand us back up on our feet, to wash us clean in His blood, and to lead us forward to eternal life and glory. Now we've been going through about nine months of COVID stress and frustration and pressure. What will this nine months give birth to? When this is all over, how will our city, our community, remember our response to this pandemic? By God's grace, we have not seen one infection in the congregation, and we praise God for that mercy. But, brothers and sisters, we will certainly be contagious one way or the other, either with the works of the flesh or with the fruit of the Spirit. And God calls us to be the right kind of contagious because the idols drive us apart, but Christ draws us together. And so we need to lift up our eyes. We need to gaze upon the vision of the exalted and victorious Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to find each other in him and we need to embrace the light and embrace the love of the gospel and we need to ask ourselves what are we using our energy to do what are we using our resources of time and energy for i think it's pretty clear that there are a bunch of different ideas about the pandemic and how serious it is, and how we ought to react to it. That's pretty clear. So let's move on now. And let's ask God, oh God, how can we find one another? What can we put before us to reflect upon, and to gaze upon, and to, to discuss, which unites us in Christ? That ought to be embracing the light and embracing the love of the gospel and asking, oh Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, help us to see how we can minister this light and this love to one another and to the community around us. Community which is hurting. They don't have that only comfort in life and death for body and soul. They don't have it. They're living in fear, many of them. They're anxious. They're worried. This life is all they have. Some of them have been in total lockdown in their houses, some of our neighbors, since March. And they're afraid. And they have no hope. How can we, together, bless our neighbors, our community, 
our city? How can we act and speak to bring light and love and life to people who live in fear, anxiety, and need, and poverty, and loneliness, and brokenness? Without God and without hope in the world, how can we bring Christ to our neighbors with our words and deeds? If that's what we're focusing on, if that is the question, which is the greatest question of our, on our minds and hearts and in our discussion, that certainly will unite us around Christ and the gospel. But what does God speak to us this morning through the Apostle John? Well, there are those seven times he calls them little children. And I'll just walk through them as I end the sermon now. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Little children, let no one deceive you, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.